Welcome to Accelerated, where we connect with some of the best subject matter experts in the cross-section of tech, venture capital, and the world we live in today. On this episode, I'm very happy to bring you insights from Shannon Kalyanamit, coming to us all the way from Thailand. She's a successful entrepreneur, gone to the dark side of venture capital, and a sharkette on Shark Tank Thailand. Now, before we dive in, a quick reminder, if you are a current or future startup founder or have one in your life, grab my book, Accelerated Startup on Amazon, iBooks, or Audible. After many years in the trenches and on all sides of the table, I wrote it to help founders save a lot of headache and heartache in those first critical few years. Of course, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Shannon is one of the sharks on Shark Tank Thailand and a partner uh, with the Asian powerhouse VC Gobi Partners. She invests in emerging markets and is focused on environmental, social, and governance factors, also known as ESG. This is a growing movement to measure the sustainability and societal impact of an investment. She started her career at Lehman Brothers and Singha Beer Corporate Office, then went on to a successful entrepreneurial run in e-commerce with PPTV Thailand. Lazada, and then her own company, which became Orami and grew into the number one online shopping destination for women in Southeast Asia. She is frequently on stage talking about strategy, branding, and women empowerment. She advises various Asian government agencies on digital transformation, entrepreneurship, and education. Fortune considers Shannon one of the most powerful women in Asia, and I'm fortunate to consider her a dear friend. Here is Shannon. Shannon, welcome to the show. Wow, what an intro. Well, um, I want to dive right in and ask you a really important question. Why are Thai last names so long? Um, it's Sanskrit, right? Actually, my last name means good friend. And it's because um, we were given, you know, when the Chinese came to Thailand, we didn't have last names. They were all like Chinese last names because we were Chinese. Um, anyway, so we were given the last name because we were a good friend of the king. So. It means a lot to us. It's a Buddhist word that means good friend. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up and what ultimately drove you to tech entrepreneurship. You know, how did Shannon become Shannon? So, yeah, born in the States. Long story is I was born in Oregon, moved down to Fremont, California, Silicon Valley when I was two. Uh, obviously not by choice. My dad was an industrial engineer, was there till I was 12. Dad got called back to politics, came back to Thailand, and then basically grew up here. Uh, I did go back to high school in a little town called Benicia, which is near the Napa Valley, um, for high school, and then came back. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I followed a boy home. <laughs> so I actually should have gotten into college in the States. Um, but instead, I was like, no, okay, I'm going to go back to Thailand because I, I told my dad. Actually, I wrote my dad a business plan convincing him that Asia was where it's going to be at. And so little did he know I, I was following a boy home, got into finance, and then started my career. So do you consider your, your kind of, um, it, it's basically a bicultural background because you you spend, you know, you're kind of one and a half generation in reverse. Like I, I was born in Ukraine and then grew up in Bay Area. 
but you kind of went back and forth and then ultimately ended up building your entire career in Asia. Do you think that gave you a big advantage to be kind of Silicon Valley mindset in Asia? What's funny is I, I actually didn't think I was, I was intimidated with tech. Like my dad, he was in hardware, he was in telcos. Yeah. And, and I had no idea really what he did. And I was quite intimidated because he was a PhD in industrial engineer. And I was this girl who didn't really know anything about tech. And um, the, the Silicon Valley actually didn't hit till like way later. And the tech thing didn't hit till way later. Back to Thailand, started my career in finance, PwC, Lehman Brothers. Um, so banking and, and did everything regional or global from Thailand. But I think the fact that I did grow up in the States and then um, came back to Thailand at a young age it did help me with my whole Asian roots. So I do have a lot of friends that are Asian that don't read or write Thai. And I think it was a, a big advantage for me because I remember, I'm dating myself now, I'm not going to say my year, but I remember when I first started PwC, um, I got in because I was uh, interning and my grades sucked. Like I, it was really bad. And they hired me because I actually could read and write Thai. Versus my friends who graduated, they could not read and write. I mean, it wasn't very good. I read and write like a seventh grader, basically, at yeah. that time. But I, I picked up really quickly because um, we had to read like a ton of contracts and whatnot. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in a similar situation. I didn't, um, I didn't really go back to you know Russian-speaking countries um, for for quite some time until my kind of mid twenties. And when I started doing business there and uh, trying to get on stage and do speeches in Russian, it was very tough because I finished second grade in Ukraine. So my, my language skills weren't up to speed, so to say. So do you consider yourself these days successful? You're well known. Do you, do you consider that you have arrived at your destination? I feel a bit more more settled, definitely. Um, maybe four or five years now. I think I think that's when I feel a bit more settled. And I think the trigger for that was, um, I mean, Orami was a big one because I finally did something and I saw it to its entirety. And I saw it actually, you know, you're an entrepreneur as well. So, you know, come from zero to, to something that actually was sellable and people liked it and it was a real product and we had like 500 employees and you know all this other stuff so that was that was point one but I think I feel even better and more settled now at Gobi because I feel like it's the marriage of three different things that I have done in my life which is the banking side the entrepreneurship side and the tech side and um, it does help with the whole entire family situation that you know my kids and and I are, are very settled. And I guess there's this point of clarity that I'm, I'm thinking clearly now and, and I know what I'm doing and I'm able to actually excel where I don't second guess myself as much. Mm -hmm. so Do you think it's more of an internal thing or, or external? Oh, definitely internal. Actually, COVID helped a lot. I mean, it, I think every day helps. Yeah. So so tell me tell me what, what's a typical work day like for you uh, for a VC in Thailand? I take care of investor relations. I take care of portfolio management. So two weeks out of every month, I'm either at a conference, doing um, potential LP meetings. I do keep myself busy in terms of 
um, trying to see a startup or two like a week, my function, my job isn't really investment. So I, but I still need to keep up to date with startups. I do a lot of mentorship with investor relations. I do take a subset function of marketing. So we kicked off a few webinar series. We do a lot of women entrepreneurship or women mentorship. And, and that's anything from how do you pitch to uh, gripes of being a woman founder all the way to um, you know the ecosystem and the new trends. So a lot of my job now um, has to do with webinars, basically um, talking to different people like you and like us, you know, we kind of have a global network. Um, so I get to reach out, talk to interesting people and, and vice versa. A lot versa. of flying these days, right? A lot more, a lot more uh, Zooming. I guess that's I guess. the replacement, isn't it, right? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's I, a little bit, uh, it's it's definitely not as, as satisfying, I think, but it gets the job done at least. Yeah. You, 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 were, you, you do focus a lot of time on, um, on supporting women entrepreneurs. You're in a part of the world that's, that's pretty um, patriarchal and you're in, a, in an industry that's, that has very, you know, it's very male dominated, admittedly. Um, I would imagine in Asia, this is like even worse. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on what that environment is like right now in Southeast Asia, how that's changing, how the business culture is changing towards uh, women being in, in power there? So it's, it's weird because we have a kind of dichotomy of, yes, we are um, very male dominated uh, ecosystem out here. But, and okay, a, a couple of facts. So Thailand has the number one uh, number of C-suite that are women in the world. It is, and, and actually there's a lot of C-suite women in, in China as well and in Hong Kong and whatnot. So we do see quite um, a number of women in, in power, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, but you actually have to dig into the, the numbers and the consumer behavior a little bit. Another fun fact, so Thailand, the 1% owns 88% of the economy. Wow. And we're talking about how Southeast Asia has the number one problem of um, inequalities. So, so that's, that's a side topic. That 1% are all family offices. With family offices, you have a son, you have a daughter. The son gets to be CEO. It's like, okay, the dad goes, okay, you get to be CEO, son. Mm -hmm. Girl, that dad goes, hey, girl, you get to be CFO. Because the girls are better with the money. You know, they take care of it. It's all about better students, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are just, you know, characteristics that, um, you know, men and women do differ. And but the, the issue is, even though that woman is a C-suite, the purchasing decisions or the, the decisions are not always made by her. So we have, you know, we have golf courses, we have massage parlors, we have bars, we have hostess bars. That's where the deals are made, right? Like it's whether you be in banking, whether you be in um, corporates, whether it, whatever it is. So, so yeah, the numbers don't lie, but if you dig into it, like the power isn't always there. So I guess right. that's kind of something that um, I'm mindful about because there's that part and then there's a whole entire part where I grew up with my mom always like, oh, so did you find a boyfriend yet? Who are you going to marry? You know, like, like that is the end goal of your success. And I have friends in banking and um, accountants and professional fields. And I'm not saying anybody, anything about anybody's life choices, but I do see um, 
how it does take an effect on women and how it, it like how they feel that they're not a complete woman if they don't get married or they don't have a boyfriend or, or husband. Very traditional, or, very conservative kind of uh, expectations still. Yeah. So we still we still have like like the whole gender equality thing, whether you women or men, is that there are gender roles that you should do. Like the men just take make sure the women take care of the kids. Like like you're you're a great father. I've seen you, you know, take care of your kids in, and in, in pictures, yes, kids. And, and on Facebook. I mean <laughs> I try. Uh, you won't see that with most men out there. They're like, okay, I produce you know what I mean? So so there's a lot of things that still need changing okay. and and for people that don't don't really kind of understand asia in general or haven't had much experience there can you contrast that with like japan and korea because i think there's a pretty stark contrast between southeast asia and um i have to say we have it a bit easier women have it a bit easier in uh, southeast asia than japanese women do um i was able to speak at a conference in tokyo a couple years back it was like four women and but the great thing was the lady uh, Kayori, Kayori um, San. She invited ministers. She invited you know the ADB. She invited all the MDBs and the Japanese government. And a lot of politicians were actually talking for the fact that we should empower more women in Japan. To the point where this lady, I think she was the head of Goldman Sachs. She was like, like isn't half of our population women? So if we, and isn't the economy of Japan staggering? And if we unlock that half, like, wouldn't the, like, economy be much better? And they're all like, hmm, yeah, that makes mm. sense. At some point, you you dove in. I remember we were chatting early days uh, when you were building your company, the e-commerce company, which became Orami. Um, what are some of the challenges you went through and, and you know, the things that you picked up along the way? Uh, you weren't new to e-commerce. Let, let's kind of walk through that history. And I mean, admittedly, I, I didn't know my metrics. You know, uh, people asked me what my elevator pitch was, and I, I seriously couldn't string it together. I think my biggest challenge wasn't gender. I didn't do the 101 of what I should have done um, as a startup founder. And I think a lot of that had to do with, okay, so I did come from Lazada. I thought that I did, um, you know, the Lazada boot camp. And I understood. Well, for those, for those that don't know, let's let's walk a little bit through kind of the market in, in Southeast Asia. Can you talk a little bit about what Lazada was, where it came from? Southeast Asia's tech boom started in approximately 2008. And it started in Singapore. And then fast forward, I mean, it took some time for adoption uh, it really didn't hit until about 2010, 2011. And at that time, we had um, Rocket Internet, a company called Rocket Internet. They basically came to Southeast Asia and they're like, you know what, I'm going to come in. I'm going to incubate like a few uh, companies like Lazada, which is supposed to be the Amazon of Southeast Asia. Um, Zalora, which was the fashion e-commerce. Food Panda. Mm-hmm. which was, you know, the food one. And then another one called Easy Taxi. So all of a sudden, and their strategy, which was, you know, at that time they called them the copycat model, right? So they would take models from the States. We know now, like, what, 10-something-ish years later, that that's just normally how it does. It's a business model replication and you improvise. So 
they brought that over and I joined. I was like the number two Thai employee there. And I was able to be part of the, the team where regionally we all built it at the same time. So it would be like Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Philippines. And every Monday would be like, okay, HR. And then everybody's like, who are you hiring? What are your bottlenecks? How are you hiring? Blah, blah, blah. And then we would hire all of them at the same time. Then it'd be like, okay, buying. How do you actually put stuff into the, the website um, products? Because we're new. Nobody knows us. We don't have inventory. And then, and then the same thing with marketing. And um, there's this whole thing that just spurred the entire economy. So for Thailand at that time, our internet penetration was probably 30%. Um, in 2011, today it's 80 because I mean, it's an incredible that- story. I mean, just doing it at scale like this across uh, a region with a billion population that's very young and needs everything. I mean, on yeah. paper, that just that's just brilliant, right? Yeah. To go in. and and execution was pretty damn good, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't take full credit for it, but I, I was very. Uh, lucky to be part of the the founding team and to see all that and so because of that that's kind of how I, I got into you know my own e-commerce I I had a falling out with the then MD because I, I then I was an in entrepreneur in residence and then I went to the, I ended up in marketing and found out oh I'm a you know, I love the marketing side of the, things and because of my background in media and TV I wanted to bring in offline marketing. It was like, no, we got to do like only digital marketing, 100%. No, and of course, I had the connections. My friends are celebrities. I had the, you know, like like social media presence, like all that stuff. I had charities. I had whatever. So I really wanted to do a bit of a hybrid, and we just had a falling out from that. Um, and so I'm like, forget this. I'm gonna do my own e-commerce. And so that's when I started my own e-commerce. And I thought, I mean, very naive. I didn't think how much money we really needed um, um, and all the challenges that I would go through. Um, and I think my bottle, my biggest challenge was I thought I knew. I was a former banker. Then I did the Lazada boot camp. And I knew how to raise funds. I did my pitch deck. Oh, my God, it's so embarrassing. My pitch deck was like, 30 pages long. Like you would never send a 30-page pitch deck these days, would you? Oh, my God. I didn't have an elevator pitch. I didn't know my, like, even though I was in e-commerce, because my stints were very short in uh, the entrepreneur residence, the, the metrics that I knew wasn't, like, on point. Even my other two partners, because I left with two other partners as well. And they, too, they, I mean, we were all bankers. We were mm-hmm. so cocky. We're like, no, we can raise money. We don't have to Bankers go. Bankers know tech. everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So naive, man. We thought Divide we the world into four quadrants. So so you, you went through some challenges there, uh, but you succeeded, and, and you're, you're very tenacious, and, and you, you got an interesting exit out of it. And then you switched to the other side of the table. I mean, kind of what's the motivation? You know, not everybody does that switch. A lot of entrepreneurs get the bug, and they do it over and over and over again but you decided to make the switch to the investor side. Kind of what led you to that decision? I really loved what I did and built. And it's like you, 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 you born a baby. And it's really hard to find something that 
really made complete sense. Like when I left the company, I really loved the company, but there was much, there wasn't much more I could do for the company at that time. We went through a series of M&As. You know, there were some cultural challenges because we merged with a, a, a company in Indo and they were all male running a woman e-commerce and we just didn't see eye to eye on things. So, you know, it was time to go. So for me, it was it was a bit of a heartache. Gobi, the place that I'm at now, um, they invested into us. Their thesis when they met me was she economy or woman economics or whatever you want to call it, right? So basically mm-hmm. the thesis and they got me and I got them, right? Because people were like, oh, Shannon, woman e-commerce is such a niche. And I'm like, no, it's not. Um, 50% is a niche, right? <laughs> I think women make actually much more of the purchasing decisions, especially in the household, like like 90%. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we buy for our moms and dads and brothers and sisters and it spans to healthcare decisions, um, education decisions, retail you know, like travel even. So um, yeah, you're right. And he and I got that. So that's why at that time they invested into us. And I thought, okay, PC, wait, I'm ex-banker. <laughs> and I think I know this. Yeah, I could do this. And and I liked it yeah, because I still get to be an entrepreneur too because I do portfolio management as well. Mm-hmm. So I get to do I the get to play coach me. a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. Uh, gratifying in that way. So um, you mentioned already that you had a little bit of uh, exposure to kind of uh, celebrities and television and all of that. And then um, I was surprised uh, pleasantly a little while back when uh, all of a sudden I see that you are a shark on Shark Tank Thailand. Um, So how did that come together? Wow, that was fun. So um, another fellow shark actually was the one that invited me. Her name is Nishida Shah. So she was like, hey, Shannon, you know, uh, they're looking for another woman shark to be on the show. But, you know, Shark Tank, they invest in startups and SMEs, like the the normal mm-hmm. businesses that doesn't have to be tech related. And they needed kind of a tech angle as well. And yeah, so I started and it was fun. We went through 88 startups and, and SMEs and they were from all different types of backgrounds and, and whatnot. And uh yeah, it was fun. It was uh, interesting. They told me I was too business. Too business for Showtime. <laughs> yeah, they're like, be entertaining. It's a TV show. And I'm like, yeah, I should know this. But yeah. You said you, you focus more on the investor relations and dealing with the limited partners that are investing in the company's investor relations, and not our, rather into the fund. Um, but you still get a lot of pitches and you're still active in that. And now you're on the other side of the table officially. Um, you know, what, what do you look for? I mean, you're, you're focused on ESG, right? That's, that's a big part of your bio and that's important to you. And that's a great thesis. Uh, talk a little bit about that and kind of what are your focus areas? What are the things that you find interesting out there? What are the opportunities in Southeast Asia and the region? Frankly, when, when I first discovered, uh, ESG, I thought that it was as simple as it being a vertical. You know, E is environment, S is social, which um, which is inclusion, right? So because I, you know, gender equality and equality all around, inclusion was like fintech, health inclusion, um, you know, education, economic mobility, all of that stuff. So I really like, I really tied in 
and, and really liked all of that stuff. And then she used governance. But what I found out later was, um, so it did tie into the whole like UN stuff and you know gender and equality and stuff. But then- as And I UN has its own like environmental goals as far as yeah. the roadmap with the uh, 16 different, different goal areas. But this is a different area. Yeah, absolutely. So that one is like goal specific, right? Like um, reduce like zero poverty or by whatever, whatever, by 2030. Um, so one would think that it's a vertical play, but what ESG really is, it's a framework, it's a lens where if you do, if you have this checklist, if you go through this like ESG um, framework, you would have the higher probability of having a sustainable company and a financially sound company. So for example, with uh, the checklist has stuff like, okay, do you emit toxins to the whole entire public and blah, 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 blah. Um, or do, so the E, right? The whole environmental thing. Um, and if you don't have those things that address all that, then one day if you're a gas company and then you pollute the whole entire lake and then you have a whole big scandal, then your company would go down. You'll basically be in trouble, right? Financial trouble, you'll have like damage, you have to hold liabilities, all this other stuff. Same thing with S. And I, I hate to use this example, but if you don't have the gender placements there, of the, the whole framework of dealing with, you know, discrimination or like whatever, whatever it is, or the hiring protocol or um, dealing with possible harassment issues, then a Me Too incident can bring your entire company down. On the other hand, if you have a diversified management, it's been proven with numbers that if you have many different thoughts and points of view, then your company would also have be able to withstand and broader audience and, and diversity in views helps you solve problems better and all those things. Now, the governance yep. aspect is probably one of the um, key. probably yeah. well it's key but it, it's 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 also not as as concrete as the other two so talk a little bit about that well g actually is governance so mm -hmm. if you don't have the proper protocol or the framework and guidelines for um like fiscal right so that all of a sudden you have like your WeWork, you know, incidents where like people are buying land and then selling it back to their own company and stuff like that. So, um, so, so it's yeah. basically checking, checking the box on good corporate governance and making sure that, you know, so, so it's, first of all, it aligns, uh, very well with where the, the world we live in today and the societal norms and what things are expected, but also yeah. it makes a good solid company. So it all makes sense. Any other areas that you focus on when you look at companies? What are interesting things for you and where do you see opportunities? So our thesis has always been the underserved markets. Um, and with underserved, we it's emerging markets basically, right? So we see a lot of growth potential, a lot of problems that need solving, whether again, back to the same verticals like FinTech, health tech, uh, retail, there's a, a burgeoning um, middle class here in Southeast Asia, and everybody's all of a sudden moving up with economic mobility with um, with higher spending. They have they want more things, so retail is is definitely up. Uh, travels up, um, education's up, like everything's up. And and with COVID now, even it just um, accelerated even more. So for me, as well as AKA Gobi, 
we look at everything emerging markets. We have 13 cities. We're in 13 mm-hmm. cities. So a little bit about Gobi, I guess. Um, been around for 18 years. Uh, we were early in China. We The, the CEO, uh, Thomas Sao, he's actually American-born Chinese, went to China. And he's like, okay, Shanghai and Beijing, a lot of startup activity going on. He saw that. He saw all this underserved needs, the growing you know, consumer market, same thing. And we did a lot of business model deals at that time. So it was media, e-commerce, like fintech, you know, the same, uh, the same cycle we're seeing here in Southeast Asia. And then fast forward, he came to Southeast Asia in 2008, met my partner, Mock, and then they basically opened Southeast Asia. And so today we have uh, 13 funds. Also, coincidentally, 13, we're in 13 cities across Pan-Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, we go all the way to Saudi Arabia and now Pakistan. And we made our first investment in Africa. And it's all about the burgeoning middle class. So we all have the same problems. Uh, we're all trying to solve the same things. And with the 13 City platform, the great thing is there's a lot of synergies between North Asia and Southeast Asia. And so there's a lot of portfolios that uh, our portfolio that work together, M and A together, do deal, all that stuff. And so I'm I'm also really lucky that I found a company that that kind of have has the same shared values. So like I said, they have the whole gender thing, and they have underserved markets and everything. And so that's they very much align with your personal thesis. It's interesting, you know. I would say five years ago more so and and beyond that even more so i'd say like southeast asia was always looking to us uh, to kind of yeah. jump that ocean but i've noticed in the last few years it's been directly north like china has been the target and chinese vcs are investing a lot more in southeast asia and um we silicon valley have kind of lost southeast asia more or less uh just by not focusing on it uh, what's been your experience on that kind of have you seen that trend kind of move yeah, most definitely. I think you're right. So in like 2011, when tech was booming, everybody's like Silicon Valley is the Silicon Valley. But frankly, it's a bit far for us. And the consumer behaviors, um, like the U.S. started from the web, right? Like dial up modem, right? Mm-hmm. And then out here, we went straight to mobile. So that whole thing, like the consumer behavior, people getting access to it, the the the, the way people consume social media, all the way to shopping, to you know, the whole thing, um, is really different. So we do take after the patterns of China. So China has been our crystal ball, kind of. Oh, this thing worked. This one didn't, and and whatnot. And we're all kind of Chinese somewhere, you know, in our background, um, specifically Thailand, even. Vietnam, you know, and then uh, Singapore. Uh, I mean, all of us, we, there's Chinese in our heritage, like one way or the other. And so, yeah, we, we've definitely looked more towards technology trends, consumer trends, um, investor trends. But last year, I was doing a lot of um, like a road show down in, in um, New York. I was in LA and uh, DC. And the American investors are still not really sure of Southeast Asia. Like they're like, okay, if you go to Asia, it's China and you invest over there. And um, Southeast Asia is kind of like the mistress that nobody's really kind of like looking at at this point of view at, the, at that point of time. 
but the Europeans are more for us, you know, because we're Europeans like, you know, travel and, and are a bit more familiar with Southeast Asia and the growth and everything. And specifically this year, what accelerated it a lot more is now with the whole China, US tension and COVID, you know, Wuhan, blah, 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 we're seeing not just businesses move to Southeast Asia, but um, investments, more interest. I'm getting a lot more calls from Europe, uh, a little bit more from America now versus prior to that, it was always China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan that wanted to, to play ball, you know, in Southeast Asia. But, but now we're, we are definitely seeing a lot more interest. Gotcha. That's interesting. And then, you know, what, what kind of character traits do you look for in founders? Because, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, I like to say like the most important thing that people overlook is that we have something like if, if you look at it, a tech uh, generation of about 10 years, we have about seven generations of tech entrepreneurs here. A lot of experience for Southeast Asia, especially a lot of it's like new and you have very young founders with very little work experience, let alone entrepreneurial experience. How do you, uh, how are you able to find like who to focus your attention on and who shows you the potential? You know, how do you filter for, for the region? So we do early stage and growth stage startups. So we have a billion dollars and we have different types of founders we look for, right? But in terms of stage, I guess every, every VC kind of says, says the same thing. You look at the entrepreneur. For me personally, having been through the, the founder journey, I look for if that person actually looks like they will survive and are quick on their feet to think, yeah. like, like, for example, COVID, right? So we're advising some of our portfolio, and a lot of them are like, no, it's not going to last more than three months, uh-huh. you know? And then some of them are like, right? So, and then we have to do scenario planning. What if it lasts more than six months? What if it lasts more than 12? And then what if it's 18 or 15, right? To 18. And what we're looking for is somebody that's not going to be so egotistical and, and be able to pivot alongside what happens. I mean, okay, that's not a very fair uh, scenario because COVID is just unheard of. Black Swan for sure. So yeah, so for me, like there's that that fluidity and, and being able to be open. But this is probably different from what other people think. But for me personally, I believe a lot in um, the team composition. Sorry to say, maybe it's ageism, but uh, I was a startup founder when I was 32. And I definitely was not a Mark Zuckerberg at, you know, in college. And I had like that genius idea and, and all that. So I definitely was not that. And I don't believe that there are many of those around. Mm-hmm. So once in, a, once in a decade, maybe. Right. And so I'm like, if you like, if you're 22, 25, whatever, you really haven't run anything in your life. You, you don't really have that kind of um, experience yet. I do like a team that actually has some functionality where like maybe somebody was a banker or somebody had structure in their career. Mm-hmm. Like the other person, like, right. There's always like three kind of people, right. The CTO or product. And then there's like the CEO, right. CEO could double up a COO or whatever it is. And then there's marketing. And so with that, you need to have some kind of fundamentals. Like for me, one of the biggest learning, even though I was a banker was cash flow. Like, it's not about raising money. It's like, how much money do you actually have? Because I did e-commerce, right? How mm-hmm. much money do you have at the 
bank? What's is are you going to have negative cash flow? How much inventory? Like how much marketing? Like you actually need to have cash in the bank, and that's actually the name of the game. Aside from scaling, right? So, so I think there's a lot of uh, actual structuring of your team and some professional expertise. That's why we see a lot more success cases in older startups. Mm-hmm. And so, if they do have a young one, they then diversify, right? So. So for me personally, those are kind of the two key things that I look for. All right. Well, let, let's switch away from from technology for a second and and talk a little bit about kind of balancing this this elusive uh, life balance work balance thing that people talk about, and uh, you know maybe maybe uh, exists somewhere out there. Uh, you have twin daughters, um, mm-hmm. which is tough to begin with for anybody. Yeah, single mom. You know that certainly has changed your career. You know, talk about that, how, how that's really changed your trajectory because they've your daughters have been around since you were an entrepreneur and then shifted to the other side through all of this craziness and your travel schedule. You know, what kind of mom are you? Uh, you know, are you lax? Are you tough? Like, how do you balance all of this? So I do live in Thailand. I, I had an unplanned pregnancy, was with the father. That's despite the point. But, you know, we actually had a father and mother in the picture. But because both of us were entrepreneurs, we had a really, really busy schedule. And I was fundraising as when I was pregnant. After I gave birth, we had um, one nanny, one housekeeper. But we were, you know, we were very present. Uh, so we were working at home. We were doing, you know, things around the clock. I have to give credit to my ex who was working you know, I was at the office, he was working at home. Fast forward, you know, because when they're babies, they don't really do much. The misconception is people think like, if you have twins, you're like, oh my God, how do you do it? They actually, when you put them down to sleep, they goo goo gaga each other to sleep. And then if one person is like, like crying, it's like A-B testing. It's like, okay, what? You're okay with this environment? You're okay. Okay. It's a controlled environment. And it's like, you're fine. A-B test your twins. <laughs> yeah, for everything, right? So it's like, okay, then you don't freak out, Shannon. Like they're okay because you know they're in that environment. So having twins kind of was a blessing, and we had a nanny when we would work during the day. She would make sure that they're fed or whatever. But you know, at night we do take care of them, and they bless. You know, so grateful they slept through the night, both of them. And so we put them down at eight thirty, and then have to feed during the whatever X time, and then you know they're up again at six. And then all over again. So then as they got a bit older, we uh, cut down to only one nanny. And I started traveling a lot. Yeah, I mean, it worked out. Fast forward to today. So I still have one nanny. She is my co-parent. I mean, the husband is not in the picture anymore. Um, but he does take care of them, you know, you know, during like every other week or, or whatever. But when they're with me, um, she's my co-parent. They get up. They, she makes them breakfast. Uh, we all eat together. Um, I go off and do my thing. They go off to school. They come back. And then they kind of play with each other all the way until dinner. And then they take their own shower now. And whenever I travel, um, I call them WhatsApp. They have their own like iPad now and whatever. So Now we're, we find ourselves in a very strange year. We were talking about this a little bit off camera. You know, both have kids. Mine, mine are a little older, but different situations. You know, generally, when you're a, a globally minded person and you're in a developing country, uh, talk about what what's education like um, that you set up for your kids in general, kind of with the international schools and all of that. And then, what are you doing now with this COVID situation? What's it like in Thailand? 
compared to other places um, that you're seeing? Okay, so my kids go to an international school. Um, there is a Thai system here, Thai school, and then there's international. And with international, um, we start the same time. So we start like August, September, and then we end up in like June and then there's summer. So right now they're in their summer. The school was not equipped for COVID as everybody wasn't. The online was not very good. Uh, I was fortunate that my sister is a kindergarten first grade teacher. My kids are six. So we went, we went online, got all these educational resources in the beginning of COVID and then put together a curriculum for them. And my sister taught them for the first part of the morning. And then I taught them something in the afternoon and I taught them like mindset, growth mindset. And it's, a little, it's a little early. I get, I get criticized for trying to uh, have my 10 year old daughter read Sapiens, but anyway, I oh digress. <laughs> I couldn't do that book. Oh my God. Um, but then that wasn't very sustainable because, you know, my, my, Sister could not be the teacher and be an aunt at the same time. So we heard rumblings of um, Bangkok getting shut down, like curfew and lockdown. And so I'm like, no, I'm, I am not staying in this house, uh, this apartment with my kids, uh, and I won't be able to work. So I called my friend up at an island, Gotcham, and then she owns a resort. I had like seven villas. Uh, right on the beach, and she's like, yeah, come over. So we left, and then Bangkok got locked down two days after that, and we're like, oh, oh my God. Just in time. So, yeah, and then we found, um, I found uh, two teachers there, South African teachers. They were stranded. Um, we came together with a curriculum, which was based a lot on the one I did with my sister. So we incorporated a lot of, so they did the core stuff, and then they did um, 21st century skills, and then uh, we were there for two months. They would um, do that in the morning. And then in the afternoons, they would play with Mother Nature. That was in their nanny was Mother Nature. And I had the next villa that the owner set up for me as my office. So it was actually a really sweet deal. Like this. she, a very thing. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> I, like, I'm, granted, because people are like, oh, I hate you now. There were snakes around. Um, yeah. yeah, that's, that's was, a little tough. Yeah. And then fast forward right right now, like that's why you hear my kids in the background. We have a homeschool here. So I imported those teachers back to Bangkok and then got my other kids' classmates. So we have a full school here from 9 to 2 p.m. every day. Um, Incredible. Yeah, doing Khan Academy for kids and doing Scratch in the afternoons and then in the mornings all core. You know, if uh, an asteroid heads towards Earth, I will definitely nominate you to be on the team to solve that problem. Um, you, you can you can handle anything. So, um, speaking of that, so what kind of legacy do you want to you know leave? You know, a lot of investors uh, put themselves up on a pedestal and kind of believe their own bullshit, right? Let, let's call it what it is, and they write blogs about themselves and and they think that you know their skills of picking founders are transferable to everything in life and their geniuses. But everybody wants to leave a legacy and, you know, personalities like your, yours, you know, you think about that, right? What's your legacy? What do you want to pass on? And, and you're already doing this with uh, the mentorship that you're doing with entrepreneurs. You know, what, what does it look like in 10, 20 years when you look back at your career? What do you want to be known as? You know, I never thought about like the legacy thing. Um, every day that I'm present, like, and, and I talk a lot, right? I, I, I do a lot of mentorship and, and, 
all I want to do is just pass. I feel like I'm a platform and I just pass on information. Like I got into the whole gender equality thing because frankly, I grew up with a single mom. You know, I just wanted to make sure that no one else had to go through that. Like seeing my mom go through like how insecure, like be little, she's my mom. So like, she's a rock star. She's a nurse. She is really smart. She did really well in her career. And yet um, there are these external pressure from the having children all the way to, you know, how you support your husband all the way to in the career and all of these different things that really shaped. And so for the equality issue, and then it spans more than that. I mean, that was the, the catalyst, but it spans more to, to that. And I want to make sure that my kids, two girls, know all that growing up, are armed with those tools growing up and all my friends and any woman or any being treated unequally. So I think that that's kind of the biggest thing that I, and it goes the same way with being a startup founder or whatever, anything I learn, you know, you don't have to take, you know, my advice, but this is what happened to me. And this is what I also see. And I meet like a thousand people like all day. And so I'm just a platform and a funnel for stories and, and case studies and, and failures and challenges. So that's what I continue to do. I get you. So you definitely want to, you know, you're, you're getting into your mentor stage of your career. Um, and on the same, you know, on the same level, kind of, do you have any regrets? And what would you tell yourself graduating college? I'm not going to say how many years ago, um, because you look like a teenager and you, I think, always will. But um, when you look back at uh, when you're, you know, your young self graduating college, not having that experience that you described, that a lot of entrepreneurs and founders uh, don't have, you know, what would you tell yourself? And what are some of the regrets in your career that, uh, that you've taken kind of wrong turns? Um, I mean, my career has been pretty up and up, but I did have uh, a good three years, four years maybe, right before I, I found Lazada. Um, that were really bad for me. And if there were any regrets, it's the fact that I didn't take enough time to really understand. Like I, I was chasing the dragon, right? I was chasing the the pipe dream or, or whatever it was of what it meant to be successful. And I think I just didn't dive deep enough to understand who I was in Southeast Asia. I think this is the same thing everywhere, but in Southeast Asia, it's very materialistic out here. And I wasn't very comfortable in my skin. I always felt that I was like a, a black sheep because I look Thai, but I don't act Thai. So people are like, huh? And so because of that, I always felt like an outsider. So I was trying to prove something that I didn't need to. And I think for that, that was the foundation that that set me off on the wrong way, which actually transpired to a career, uh, a job during that time um, that didn't go so well. So I think in, in hindsight, uh, and then now, you know, obviously I, I know that and correct different things, but I think I just didn't um, sit down to actually do an assessment of myself. I guess the word of the, the decade now is mindfulness, right? Like awareness. But you don't get that unless... You actually like went past the whole thing. So I don't know if I would have been able to fix that. If I didn't go through that rock bottom period, I would, I would still not be the person I am. So I don't, I actually don't have any regrets at all. Cause all my, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. 
But um, is there anything, so I, I, I know that um, I've done a lot of different things and I've been curious about, you know, different sides of the table and different types of industries and all sorts of things. And um, I've kind of dabbled in a lot of different things. And although there's certain satisfaction of being kind of renaissance and knowing a little bit of everything, the most successful people I've noticed are experts, are specialists. And I always think like, hey, maybe if I kind of, you know, chose something and, and stuck with it and put in uh, 10, 20 years into one thing, if I chose the right thing, maybe I would have gotten luckier, right? Knowledge of meeting an opportunity. Um, do you have the same feeling at all? Because you, you have a similar path because you've done a lot of different things as well. Yeah, I, I guess I'm biased because I can't change all that, right? <laughs> right sure. But it looks like my career huh, is all over the place. For me, the one underlying thing that I always have is business development. So whether it be in banking... The relationship you know, with people and the communication piece. Like in banking, I did a lot of restructuring. I did a lot of M&As and it's a lot of business development because you have to figure out what to do with that company and blah, 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 and consulting, same thing, right? And then I was doing a corporate job, the Singha beer, and I had to open new countries, fix country distribution, fix marketing, fix whatever. And it was a lot of business development, but global. And then same thing as a startup founder, a lot of business development. And then in VC, I have portfolio management, but also the investor relations. I'm kind of like an entrepreneur inside VC trying to help help build the company. So I feel that maybe that's my functional expertise, mm -hmm. but I definitely don't have like, I would get so bored if I was like, okay, just like professional and marketing, you know, like I feel that yep. I like that. I have marketing. Well, we're much the same in that sense because you know, part of the satisfaction is doing a lot of different jobs, a lot of different hats. And my biggest problem was focus for the longest time. Now I'm like super, super focused. But back in the day, it was like you, when you have too many opportunities, you don't know what to cut and then you don't, you fail in everything because you try to do too much. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to um, close out uh, for today. I, I'd love to have you back uh, sometime where we can talk about uh, different top topics of the day. Dear viewers and listeners, this was Shannon Kalayanamit, partner at Gopi Ventures and Shark on Shark Tank Thailand. She invests in great companies, primarily in Southeast Asia, and does investor relations for Gobi. Uh, Shannon, thank you very much for joining us today. And thanks thank to you uh, for checking out this episode of Accelerated. Hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out to me at golem.net. So you can find Shannon at gobi.vc. Thank you once again, and have a great day.